Man, if that don't fire you up, you need to check your ticker. Make sure it's working this morning. I hope you're doing well today. If you've got your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And yes, we are getting toward the end of the book of Mark. As Joey said, as we've been studying together as a church family, wow. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have learned and been reminded uh, of a lot of things through going through this study. And today we get to uh, the part of the crucifixion. And we're going to talk in just a little bit about what happened as a result of the crucifixion. Today, perhaps like uh, no other day on the calendar, on the Christian calendar, uh, is probably, I like to say, the second most important date. Because without the birth of Jesus, there would be no life of Jesus, there would be no crucifixion. And next week we'll talk about what happens after Christ is crucified. So this is a very important topic, a very important day, an important scripture if you are a follower uh, of Jesus Christ. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 15. And as we, as we look at some of these verses, as you know is my habit, we may stop along the way and point out a few things before we get into the bulk of what I want to share with you uh, this morning. You'll, you'll know as you've been following along, hopefully, in the study of Mark, that Mark is a guy who normally is brief, to the point, not a lot of flowery details and, uh, uh, you know, getting into all the minutiae of what's going on. He's kind of to the point, just the facts, Jack, you know, he just kind of tells you things as it is. And that is the case with a lot of this chapter, but we're going to see a couple of times along the way he gives some specific details and maybe for particular reasons. So uh, let's jump in. We're going we're to jump in Mark chapter 15 and actually start with verse 16. And then we'll get to the bulk of what we want to look at uh, this morning. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 15 verse 16. The soldiers took him, Jesus, away into the palace. That is the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting at him, and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, and put his garments on him, and led him out to crucify him. Now let's stop for just a minute. The other gospel accounts go into a lot more details about the crucifixion. Crucifixion is, most historians and most medical doctors, most scientists will tell you it's the most gruesome kind of death that someone could experience is the crucifixion. So I want you to keep that in mind as you, as you think about what you're hearing in some of these verses, what Jesus would have endured. Let's pick up at verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right 
and one on his left. Let's stop for just a second, and we're going to jump into the bulk of our passage here in just a little bit. I just want to mention a couple of things. You'll notice as we read more of these verses that there's no attempt made from uh, Mark whatsoever to des- describe the physical sufferings of Jesus. Now, I've heard medical doctors and uh, scientists who are Christians preach on the crucifixion of Jesus and give scientific and medical details, very gruesome details, that we might briefly talk about on Thursday in our Monday Thursday service. And some of what I've heard and learned, it's, it's mind-boggling that the human body could withstand the torture, really, and what Jesus' body went through. This death probably, historians tell us, was probably invented by the Persians. And you know, if you've been in church at any amount of time, you know that Jesus was stripped. We like to be modest in our North American culture and put a nice little cloth around some of his areas, but most probably that was not the case. He was probably fully uh, in front of everybody in his birthday suit, hanging on a cross, bleeding and scourged after being flogged. And John's gospel account tells us that he was nailed to a pole, most probably through the wrist, though often in our North American culture we like to say the hands of Jesus, it probably was through the wrist, because the wrist have the bone structure that could be able to hold a person's weight upon the cross. And most probably his feet were placed one on top of the other and the spike was driven through uh, right around the ankles. I mean, I won't get into all the science because I don't know it all, but I've heard scientists and medical doctors talk about it and it's enough to make me cringe. This is what they did to our Jesus. This is what they did to the Savior of the world. It's interesting that when the Romans brought Jesus... And all the crowd that was incited brought Jesus before Pilate. The initial charge, if you go back and read uh, chapter 14 and 15, the initial charge of Jesus was blasphemy. But when they get in front of the crowd and the crowd begins to get incited, they change their charge to a civil charge of treason. I was reading that again this morning. And folks, I don't know what's going to happen in our culture. I'm not a prophet per se. But it's interesting that they took the religious charges that they brought against Jesus, and when it got really toward the end, they shifted those charges to political charges. We live in a world today where a lot of people are complaining about some of the beliefs of the Christian church and complaining about our faith. And I don't know if you've watched media lately, I've tried to turn it off, but slowly and subtly they are shifting those in political terms. I don't know what's coming. Pilate here is faced with an incredible decision because they bring Jesus before Pilate and they try to force him uh, with a little bit of peer pressure to do something that maybe he didn't want to do. Now, you may or may not know this about Pilate. I knew a little bit, had to re-educate myself on the history. But to understand where Pilate was and the decision he was being forced to make, you have to know a little bit of the background of what he was going through, what he was facing. Pilate had obtained his position from the most powerful man in Rome at the time, Alias Sejanus. I think is how you say his name. And Alias gave... Uh, him in charge, kind of a governorship, if you will, and appointed him to be co-ruler with Tiberius, the emperor. 
at the time. Well, Alias decides, I'm not uh, satisfied with being a co-partner. I want to be the main guy. So he makes plans to overthrow Tiberius. But little does he know, Tiberius knows about this. Go back and study history. And Tiberius kind of cuts to the chase and figures out that there's about to be this insurrection. And he's about to be overthrown. And so they capture Alias and they take him out and they execute him. And one of the things that Tiberius says at that execution and in the days to follow, so that all the people hear, he says to them, there will never be another time in history where we will have hostilities against the Jews. So here we have Pilate standing before this crowd. He knows that Jesus is a Jewish man. He knows the crowd has been incited and they're now chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Even though Pilate tried to bring out on the stage Barabbas and the crowd didn't want to have this guilty man, this convict released, they wanted Jesus to be crucified. Now that the crowd is chanting this, he realizes I'm in a I'm in a difficult place because I know that Tiberius says no more hostilities against the Jews and here I am, what am I going to do? Because I don't want to get in trouble. And so he's standing before them. Though he loathes them, he has to be seen as being fair. He was, he's going to come under this scrutiny of Tiberius. So that's what's going on in his mind. And the crowd incites, uh, gets incited and Pilate is forced to release Barabbas and Jesus is led out to be flogged, we read in verses 15 and 16. Now, if you go see some of the movies and you can debate which one's the best movie of the crucifixion, I would say to you, based on all that I've seen probably in recent years, which is probably 20 years ago now, I guess, was the uh, movie that Mel Gibson put out, The Passion of Christ. Probably the most realistic is what happened to Jesus on the cross. Not exactly. But you see in most movies where they say Jesus was flogged 39 times. It's another myth of North, the North American church. Or nowhere in Scripture does it say 39. The reason that we get that 39 is because that was administered in the Jewish synagogue, that kind of discipline, and they use rods. But what happens here is the Romans did not use rods, they use whips. Known as the cat of nine tails. And in that long whip, at the end of that whip, were strands on the end of that whip. And on that strands were things like rock and metal and glass. So that when you would swing it and hit it at the person, and it wrapped around their body and caught. And then when you pulled back, it would rip hunks of flesh and skin off. And the people were used to, get, keep this in mind, the people of Jesus' day were used to seeing this quite often. Jesus was not the first one to be whipped and scourged. That's what they did to convicts and criminals. And so they were used to seeing this in their day. I can't imagine that being an everyday occurrence. But there's no stipulation, there was no stipulation in the law as to how many lashes a person could receive for being convicted of a crime. And they take Jesus out. The Bible tells us that they take him out in verse 16 to the praetorium and they dress him up. Now, you may not know this. I didn't know this till a few months ago as I was studying. That there was this game that they would play with the convicts. And I've been told from friends of mine who have been to Israel, which, by the way, we need to get a church trip and go to Israel. Would anybody be interested in going? Okay, good. Well, there we go. We need to do that. I haven't been. I would love for the first time I go to go with you. That'd be awesome. But pastor friends of mine that have been say that when you walk in this area, you can see remnants 
on the pavement of drawings, almost like our version of checkers, where they would play with convicts and they would dress them up and they would have competition and move the convicts from square to square, whipping them, making them move, putting a purple robe on them, moving them to the next square, playing this game. And when they got to the other side of this board that was on the ground, they would put a crown on their head and they would say, King. Talk about humiliation. Amazing. John tells us that when they press into Jesus or they call him up and they put that beam across his back, which it was just the beam, was it the whole cross? It was just the beam. When they place us on his back, John chapter 19 tells us that Jesus began to walk with that beam. And we often assume, again, in, in our Christianity, some of our things that we repeat that sound good, we think that Jesus got weak and so he fell to the ground. That's how the movies portray it. And then Simon of Serene steps in to carry the cross beam for Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture does it say Jesus got weak. Wouldn't surprise me with what he's been through that he may have been tired and weary. But the Bible doesn't say that. What we do know if you study Jewish culture and Jewish history is what happened when people were being executed and they were being marched down the road with this beam and they were headed to crucifixion was that the guards and the soldiers had uh, a right, so to speak, to grab anybody out of the crowd to quote-unquote the legal phrases to carry the burden And they could pick someone at random out of the crowd to walk one mile with this beam. And we find out that they call out in verse 21, a passerby, Simon of Serene. Now, this this verse should wake us up a little bit. Because this is the first time where Mark kind of goes off his normal script. And he starts giving us a little bit of details. Because here's what he said. Verse 21, a passerby from the country, Simon of Serene. And then he tells us about Simon of Serene. Who is it? The father of Alexander and Rufus. More than likely he says that because the people of the day knew who this Simon of Serene was. It was not just some average guy. This is a person that they knew. And they knew the two people that are identified there. As a matter of fact, biblical scholars debate this. I don't know. But if you keep studying through the Gospels and you get into the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 16, it talks about a Rufus there that Paul is working with. Could it be, most scholars think, according to the timeline and the evidence of Scripture and so forth and so on, that this was the Rufus who was related to Simon of Serene who wound up carrying the beam for Jesus. And yet later on, here it is, Paul Pouring into his life. And they take Jesus, the Bible tells us in verse 22, to the place Golgotha, place of the skull. Now, I learned something a couple years ago. Don't throw anything at me, but we call this place Calvary. If you look in your Bible concordance, nowhere in your Bible, unless you wrote it in there in your concordance, probably is the word Calvary. Why? Because that's a Latin translation of the place of the skull. Now, I like Calvary better. Sounds a little more hopeful than saying place of the skull. But let's, let's kind of get mentally in, into the story here. Jesus is get, being walked to the place of crucifixion, which is called the place of the skull, a place of death. The translation into Calvary happened around the year 1600 or so. And as he's walking 
people are making fun of him. And they get to verse 23 and it says they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. And the reason that they did that is because they were in that wine mixed with myrrh was almost like a little, little drug. So they're thinking, if you can take a little bit of that, we'll help you take off the pain. And the Bible tells us Jesus refused that. Much like you ladies refuse any kind of pain medication at birth. When you're birthing a baby, I don't know how in the world you do that. My sister did that. Ah, natural. I was like, wow, wow. Whew. Can't imagine. And the pain of childbirth I can't relate to, nor can I relate to the pain Jesus must have been going through. And they tried to give him a little bit of an out, and he refused it. And then they crucify him again. Mark gets right to the point. Does it go into the details of the crucifixion? Very next verse, they crucified him, and they began to divide up his garments, casting lots for those. And when Jesus was walking, we know that eventually, verse 26 tells us, is they put him on the cross. Above the cross was this inscription, King of the Jews. More than likely, I haven't seen this played out in any movies either. But more than likely, that same placard that was placed on the cross hung around his neck like a dog tag as he's pulling the cross down through the streets. Because that was the custom when someone was crucified. For everybody to see, and this placard around his neck that hung there that said, This is the king of the Jews. This placard that maybe Pilate meant as an insult to Jesus and also an insult to the Jewish leaders. But little did they know that it was the most profound truth of the world. Because he was the king. Not only the Jews, but king of the world. So what else happened as a result of the crucifixion? Let's keep reading. Verse 33. The sixth hour came. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, And breathed his last. Verse 38. The veil of the temple at that moment was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. He said truly this man was a son of God. And there was also some women looking on from a distance. Among whom were Mary Magdalene. Mary the mother of James the less. And Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered, some translations say, was surprised that he was dead by this time. And he summoned the centurion, questioning him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. There's six things I just want to point out very quickly this morning that I see here. Three major things, maybe three minor things that happened as a result 
of Jesus' death. Here's the first one. The Bible tells us that the veil was torn from top to bottom. Verse 38, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, the significance of this is huge. The significance of this in our life as a Christ follower is huge. The, the temple curtain was that curtain that separated the normal people, the average people, from the priest who would go into the Holy, Holy, uh, Holy of Holies in the Old Testament and be able to have communion with God. Such a holy place to have communion with the Spirit of God that Bible scholars and again historians tell us that many times when the high priest went in to have communion with God, they would tie a rope around his ankle. Say, so why would they do that? For fear that in case he accidentally dropped dead, they could pull him out because they would not go in there because that was the most holy place. So the significance of this veil, this curtain being torn, is very important. Think about it with me for just a minute. I mean, consider this. God in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, walked with Adam and Eve. Mind-blowing. We can't relate. There's no physical, mental way, logically, we can relate to that because all we have known is the sin of man because of the fall of man. But Jesus' plan, God's original plan, was that he would be able to walk among the people and have communion. But after sin, they no longer could endure his presence. They had to dwell apart from the paradise, his perfect place. So think about this. Any time after that, that Jesus, God, God and Jesus are the same, right? Any time God appeared or spoke in the Old Testament after the fall of man, what happened? What was... Most of the time, what was the reaction of people? Fear. They were scared to death because they never walked hand in hand with God like Adam and Eve had. You read about it in Exodus chapter 20. You think about Moses. The people saw thunder and they saw lightning and they heard uh, the trumpet sound. This mountain was up in smoke and they were fearful and they stayed away at a distance. And they said to Moses, you, uh, you kind of speak up uh, to us yourself and we'll listen. You go up and you find out what God wants and you come back down and speak to us and we'll listen. But don't have God speak to us or we'll die. That's kind of what most people thought, Old Testament. Has God changed? Is he different when he walked with Adam and Eve than he is today? No. What changed? We changed. We sinned. We fell. We disobeyed God. And throughout the Old Testament, this veil existed between God and between Israel. Sometimes there was a cloud that would come, remember, and reveal itself. That was kind of God revealing himself as a cloud, both to show his presence, but also to conceal his might and his glory and majesty from people. Because if they saw him for who he really was, boom, they would die. Because it would be so magnificent and so awesome. That's the result, my friends, of sin. Mere human beings could no longer tolerate being in the presence of God because of His holiness and His awesomeness. But the good news is what happened as a result of the crucifixion was the veil was torn from top to bottom, which opened the way for us to do number two, to have complete access to God. Number two, man has now complete access to the throne of grace. You don't have to make an appointment with your pastor, whenever the pastor's here, and come confess your sins 
and go out and paint seven new white lines on the parking lot for your penance to be able to be right with God. Guess what? Not, not that we don't mind talking and praying with you, but the reality is you can talk to Jesus any time of day or night you want, which is awesome. That couldn't happen in the Old Testament. As a result of the veil being torn, we now have complete access to Jesus. Because of his death on the cross, he canceled our sin. His blood has cleansed us. This separation that we had from the Father and from God's presence has been canceled. And now it's up to us to make that journey to accept that. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to the payment of sin that Jesus made on the cross, I want to invite you this morning when the service is over to say, I, I want that. I want that. Because here's the good news. Nothing you or I could ever do. There's no amount of hoops. There's no amount of good stuff. There's not enough times you can come to small group or Sunday school. There's not enough scripture verses you can memorize. There's not enough perfect attendance pins you can have for coming to church that are going to get you acceptance into the throne of grace. You know what is going to do it? The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. Now some of us, all right, me sometimes, not a fan of that all the times. Why? Because one of my weaknesses to a certain degree is I'm performance-based guy. Type A personality. So it kind of chops me up a little bit to think that there are people who could live like the devil almost all their life and get on their deathbed and surrender their hearts and lives to Jesus and Jesus to go, come on in, you're accepted into the throne of grace, you're accepted into heaven. I may not like that, but guess what? God doesn't care whether I like it or not, it's true. If you are sincere in your heart and you follow Jesus Christ and you accept his forgiveness, it's true. It doesn't matter when you do it, but here's the thing, you better do it. Because if you leave this planet before you do that, then it's not a pretty story. You spend an eternity separated from God. You go against the very thing that the veil and the cross accomplished for you. Jesus did that to have, give you access to his throne. Some of us in here may be beating ourselves up over some sin that is in our life. Maybe a sin that's got a strong foothold. And you think... There's no, nothing I can do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set myself free from this sin, and I'm going to try to overcome it. And after two weeks, I'm doing good. Three weeks, doing good. Four weeks, doing good. And then you fall to whatever that sin is again, and you think God doesn't love you. Wrong. God paid for that sin. Jesus paid for that sin on the cross. Be set free. Be set free. There's a spiritual word. I think I've shared this with you before. A lot of you know this. There's a spiritual word that happens here because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's called this, justification. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I are justified to enter into the presence of God. Now, I used to hear it described this way, that justified means you look, if you've accepted Jesus into your life and you've accepted the blood on the cross... You look, when Jesus looks at you, just as if you have never sinned. Justification. That's pretty good. But you know what? That's only half of justification. Justification is not only that you have not done things wrong, the way Jesus looks at you because of his blood, but justification means 
It looks as if you've done everything exactly right. Y'all aren't getting excited about that. You guys have your Wheaties this morning? That gets me fired up. Jesus looks at me, not that, well, you're a perfect, spotless person because of the blood of Christ. No, you're perfect, spotless, beyond reproach, blameless, holy. You've done everything exactly right, Jack Easton, your whole life. How can I know that? How do I know that? I don't know that because I've done it. I only know it because the blood of Jesus did it for me. So it's not my performance that gets me into heaven. It's the performance of Jesus Christ on the cross that gets me into heaven. It's done. Matter of fact, when it was over, he said, it is finished. There's nothing to be said. There's nothing to be done. Everything is over. It's done. Come on into my presence. Come on into heaven. Say, Jack, you had too much tea this morning. I probably did. I probably did. This gets me fired up. You know why it gets me fired up? I know how bad I am. In a few weeks, in your small groups of Sunday school classes, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And I think one of the things I have to be reminded is, the good news is good only when you know the bad news. And the bad news is, I am a filthy, dirty sinner. I sin every single day. I think things I shouldn't think. I do things I shouldn't do. I treat my wife how I shouldn't. I treat my kids how I shouldn't. I am a dirty, filthy sinner. That's only half the story. The good news is, because of Jesus and his blood on the cross, he sees me as an incredible, fantastic dad who does everything right. A husband who always loves his wife, who always sends her flowers on Valentine's Day, who always remembers her anniversary and the day we met. Gets me excited. So you, if you are a child of God, and you leave this room today, I want to tell you, you are justified. Not only does God see you through His Son as doing everything, as not doing all the bad stuff you've done, but He sees you as having done everything right. Amazing. Third thing that I see here that happened as a result of the crucifixion is the centurion saw Jesus as who he really was. Verse 39 says, When the centurion who was standing right in front of Jesus, I can't imagine, standing right in front of Jesus, looking at the cross, he sees Jesus go through all this, he hears Jesus take his last breath. And then he says, Wow, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, some of you may have a translation that doesn't say that. So let me help you. Because there are some translations that say the centurion said, Truly this man was a son of God. It's not what the original language says. I'm not a Greek scholar. I had two years and I barely passed those two years. But in the Greek, there's no Greek article in the Greek text. But some translations in adding an article so it doesn't read Without the and an and a, they just put in, oh, we'll just throw in an a, that'll work. No, that's not what the original language says. The centurion looks, he sees what Jesus has been through, and he says, truly that must have been the Son of God, not a Son of God. So the centurion saw Jesus as who he really was. Jesus must most clearly showed his identity as the Son of God because of his obedience to the Father. According to the Gospel of John, when Jesus rose up from that Last Supper, 
We'll be participating in communion Thursday night. Jesus said to them around that table, you can read it in John chapter 14, the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold over me. He comes so the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So the centurion, seeing Jesus die in this way, recognizes the obedience of the Son of God. And Jesus' obedience cancels our disobedience. His humility cancels my pride. The weakness of God more powerful than any worldly force. I can't imagine. I mean, this centurion, this soldier, this military guy with awesome might who probably knew more power, humanly speaking, than most of us in this room. He was trained to respect physical power and strength. He sees this earthquake and all these uh, occurrences happen, darkness happen, earthquakes happen when Jesus takes his last breath. And Scripture reminds us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that he will come... On the clouds and every eye will see him. And here's the verse that, man, even those who pierced him will see him coming on the clouds saying, I am coming back to take my children. Even those who mocked him on that day. There will be a day all people on the earth will see it just as the centurion saw. But there's three other maybe... Lesser things that I want you to see here as we wrap up this morning. And here's the fourth one. The true disciples of Jesus are revealed. We know that when Jesus was crucified, all his followers fled. And many on that journey as they got closer and closer to the crucifixion, when the miracle worker was not around, and he wasn't turning water into wine, and he wasn't feeding tens of thousands of people, In their eyes, doing the magic tricks. They're like, okay, we're gone. Church family, as I thought about it this week, you know I write down questions, and here's just some thoughts and questions that came to my mind. When all the hype is gone, would you show up to worship Jesus? We've got great music. We've got sound. We have projection. I'm not downplaying all those. I love all that stuff. We have nice cushion chairs. I got an email update this week from our missionary in Malawi that many of you know, Pastor Mark, who's been over in Mozambique ministering to an Islamic community of about 300 people. Many of them came to Christ, and he was sharing with me through email. Even the pastor did not, until last week, have a Bible in his language to stand up and continue to help these people grow. And he's showing me pictures where they're sitting outside in rocks and dirt by the hundreds. When it gets hard, are you going to be a true disciple? I think one of the tests that we are getting ready to be put in front of is that very thing with our country. It's easy to follow Jesus when we have the president that we want, when he does the things that we do, and he's conservative or whatever that we want, and then our leadership changes in our world, our nation, our community, and then we start, uh, 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 things get a little bit rough. Are you going to follow Jesus? Am I going to be a true disciple? 
Because those that we know now on this side of history, all these thousands of years later, that we could rattle off their names, Matthew, uh, Bar, uh, uh, Peter, John, James, all the disciples we could mention, all those at the time, the Bible says, split. They're gone. Last week we talked about one that even was challenged. Do you know this man? No, I don't know this man. No, really, we saw you with this man. No, I don't know this. Peter. Are we going to stay true to Jesus? Am I going to stay true? Verse 41 says there was only a handful of people that seemed to stay true to Jesus. True disciples. Who were they? Verse 40. Some women. Looking on from a distance, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. This is not in my notes. This is for free. Men. Men. Are we going to step up? Men, are we going to step up? Part of the reason the world is the way it is. Is because we have, for the large part, our church is an exception here, I know. But the large part, generally speaking, in churches across our, across our world, we have pansies when it comes to men who are Christians. Why is that? I'm pointing the finger at me. Why am I not willing to step up and be a leader for the Christ who hung naked on the cross? What is my problem? Is it because I care what somebody else thinks? I need to get over it. This is a momentary journey I'm on here on this planet. One of the reasons I love some of you older folks, and I think about my dad, and I think about my father-in-law, and sometimes they say things and I'm just like, wow, there's no filter there. They just like let it rip. Part of me is I appreciate that because you know what? They don't care what you think. And there's a little bit about that I think that men in the church need to get to that point where we go, you know what? We don't care what other people think. We're going to tell you what Jesus says and we're going to live for Jesus and we're going to change our world. And I don't know if you're keeping up with this right now, but even in our Christian culture, some of you are because you've asked me about it, we're, we're blasting some key women that have been taking a stand for Jesus for many, many years. And here's my... Maybe I shouldn't say that. Here's my advice as a pastor. Men, we probably should keep our mouths closed unless we're willing to step up to the same level of leadership that some of our women are. Say, Jack, are you a feminist? No, I'm a Bible believer. I believe what the Bible says. The fact of the matter is, women are stepping up a lot of times because they're kind of looking behind going, hello, are you asleep? And they're waiting on us as men to stand up and be a true disciple of Jesus. I thank God that we have a lot of men like that in this church. You show me a strong church in our world and you... Pull back the curtain and look at the people. And 99 times, 99.9 times out of 100, it will be directly correlated to the strength of men in the church who are praying, serving, leading, and doing what God called them to do. Again, I thank God that this church is above average. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we can't improve. 
But the true disciples of Jesus were revealed. Number five, Pilate was surprised. Some translations say surprised that Jesus was dead. It says in my translation, New American Standard, he wondered if Jesus was dead. Probably because he's thinking of all the stuff he went through on the cross. He's wondering, was this the Son of God? Was it not the Son of God? Here I have sent this guy out to be killed and crucified and died. He's wondering. And then Joseph of Arimathea comes to give him confirmation. And asked to bury the body. And then we see number six. Number six and we're done. That Joseph brought that linen cloth. Wrapped Jesus in the linen cloth. Laid him in a tomb. Cut out of the rock. And rolled the stone. In front of it. And I don't know what the ladies on that day thought. I wasn't there. But man I wish. I wish. I wish I had been. Because after seeing all that Jesus did, all the miracles that he did, walking on the water, teaching guys who were expert fishermen how to fish, healing people, touching people, healing blind people, casting out demons, and then believing, this is the Son of God, this is, and then seeing him on a cross die, take his last breath, and then darkness comes. I don't know what they thought. Maybe they thought, okay, that was, it's over. What happens? We ought to come back next week and find out. If you don't know what happens, and there may be somebody here who doesn't know what happens. He's alive. He's alive. Jesus was on that cross. He paid the penalty of sin. But on the third day, that stone rolled away, and it was empty. He wants to do that for you. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the power of the cross. It does have the final word. Every sin has been paid. You paid a debt you did not owe. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. The blood of Christ washed all that away. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as their Savior... They need to be set free from the penalty of sin. I pray this morning that they would respond to you. Church family, while you're praying this morning, thank you for your attentiveness. I would just ask you to pray because there may be, even if it's just one person in this place, it would say, I need to know that my sins are forgiven. I need that justification. I need to know that when Jesus looks at me, he sees me. And can see me as one who's never sinned and one who's done everything right because of his blood on the cross. And friend, this morning, if that's you and you just say, you know what, I, I'm not sure that I know that I know I've been forgiven. I'm not sure that I know that I know Jesus is my Savior. Then when nobody looking around, if that describes you and you'd say this morning, I, I need to know Jesus as my Savior, I want access directly to the God of the universe. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand so I can have a prayer with you? I'm not going to embarrass you. You can stay right where you're seated. But if that's you today and you just say, I need to know that Jesus. Anybody just raise up your hand. Anybody else? You say, I, I've never done that before. I need to know that Jesus. Lord, thank you. Most of us in this room are confessing that we know you. Like that centurion, may our prayer be as we leave this place this week. 
May our lives say that you are truly the Son of God. Thank you for what you're doing in our church family. Have your way during this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have a closing song of invitation. Maybe this morning you just need to come down to the front, grab a chair, or pray and thank God for the payment of penalty of sin that he gave on the cross for you through his son. Whatever God leads you to do this morning, would you do it as we sing together?